What's up everybody, GenX Dividend Investor here. In this valuable video, I tell you what I feel the biggest risks to dividends are, spoken as someone who's retired due to dividends paying all my expenses. I'll also share some fascinating data about dividends from a college finance course. And before moving on, I ask you to please hit the thumbs up button, subscribe if you haven't yet, and click that bell icon so you're notified when I post new videos. Okay, first I want to share some big news, which is that this morning I got an email from Seeking Alpha saying that their referral link affiliate pricing that they've been offering for premium membership will end on May 22nd, aka 9 days from now, and then is going up a lot in price. So that means that any new people who sign up before May 22nd using my affiliate link in the description of this video can get a 1 year premium membership for only $99, along with a 7 day free trial that you can cancel if you don't like it. Okay, so now let's talk about the biggest risk to dividends, starting with discussing various reasons why companies suspend or cut their dividend. Like one obvious reason is if their cash flow can't sustain paying out a dividend, then a company will probably do a cut. Another reason might be if a company is restructuring, kind of like AT&T recently did. Or sometimes a black swan event like the pandemic can happen, and that leads to dividends being cut, like what happened to Disney. But what I'm concerned about the most are not black swan events or underperformance by the businesses I own, but instead I'm most concerned about the guys in Washington who may change laws or regulations that materially negatively impact my stocks, and specifically what could impact all my dividend stocks and thus my ability to stay retired on dividends or if new tax laws happen. I mean take a look at this graph showing tax rates on dividends and capital gains in the US from 1961 until 2011. Dividend tax percentage is listed on the top blue line, and capital gains are on the bottom in red. And what should blow your mind is when you look at the left side of the graph starting in 1961, because that's when dividends were taxed at 91% in the highest tax bracket. Let that sink in for a moment. It means that if you got a dividend of 100 bucks, then $91 of it would be taken by Uncle Sam, leaving you with only a piddly $9. At that time capital gains were about 25%, obviously way better. Then you can see how in the 80s that dividend taxation fell down to about capital gains levels, which roughly aligns when Reagan was in office. Then in the 90s up until early 2000, the worst bracket taxed dividends at 40%, while capital gains were about half that. And then in 2003 when the Bush tax cuts came into effect, that lowered qualified dividend tax rates to 15%. So to me taxation is the biggest risk to dividends. Fortunately, most of our congressmen and women own stocks, including both Republicans and Democrats, so hopefully they won't go berserk with new taxes, but you never know. If they went back to crazy 90% levels, then I might be forced into selling shares to remain retired, as dividend income might no longer be viable for me. And for reference, how do you think dividends were taxed before the 1960s? Well, it turns out that dividends paid out to shareholders were exempt from taxation from the passage of the 16th Amendment from 1913 to 1953, except for a four-year period from 1936 to 1939, where dividends were taxed at an individual's income tax rate, which peaked at 79%. But another observation, if you look at USA's debt over time, you can also see how as tax cuts were enacted, our national debt went up. Though, of course, our spending has also been going up. Now, an interesting finding from a couple guys at the National Bureau of Economic Research was that the Bush 2003 tax reform induced a large, widespread set of firms to initiate regular dividend payments and to raise the payments that they were already making. AKA, as dividend taxation became more favorable to the investor, companies initiated and or grew their dividends, which makes sense. Here's some data of the SP1500 in the US that shows how much companies paid out in dividends and buybacks in billions of dollars from 1994 to 2018. 
So like in 1994, the top 1,500 US companies paid out $110 billion in dividends. That went up a bit to $119 billion in 1995, then up to $128 billion in 1996, etc. Dividend payouts increased in a nice trend until 2000, where dividends flatlined during the dot-com crash, i.e. they paid out $156 billion in 2000, $155 billion in 2001, $155 billion in 2002, but then in 2003 with the Bush tax cuts, they leapt up to $171 billion, then up to $199 billion in 2004, and up to $259 billion in 2005. So those tax cuts made the dividend payouts go super saiyan. We shot all the way up to $299 billion in 2007, but then the financial crisis hit and dividends fell down a tad to $286 billion in 2008, then down more to $255 billion in 2009, then down to $249 billion in 2010. Then as we climbed out of that rat's nest, companies started increasing their total dividend payout once again. Now, that data represents the top 1,500 companies, but realize that some individual companies kept paying out more through all those years, like Dividend Kings did. And here's a slightly different view of that data, which shows dividend payouts in billions from 1980 to 2018 as the light blue bars, which trend up in time, with some sideways or slightly down years in the dot-com era and the financial crisis. It also has buybacks on it in the darker blue bars, and you can see how dividends were more than buybacks until around 1997 or so, at which point companies started doing more buybacks than dividends. The black line on here is the percentage of companies that paid out dividends, and you can see that almost 80% of companies had them in 1980, down to a low of 25% in 2001, and then up to around 40% in 2018. Remember, this is just from a subset of companies that both paid dividends and buybacks. An interesting observation is that share buybacks followed the economic cycle with increased or decreased activities when the market is up or down, with buybacks having greater volatility, i.e. both dividends and buybacks can get affected by the overall market, but buybacks have been more volatile and are influenced a lot more than dividends are. And that is one reason why I prefer dividends in retirement versus selling shares, aka dividends can fluctuate, but tend to do so much less than things like stock prices and buybacks. So dividends tend to insulate you from market gyrations, at least to some degree. Looking back at the data, we see that dividend payouts in aggregate fell about 16% from their high in 2007 to a low in 2010 during the financial crisis. But look at what happened to buybacks. They went from $673 billion in 2007 down to $300 billion in 2009. That's like a 55% drop, and it's an example of how buybacks were like three times as volatile as dividends were. And in fact, you'll see the buybacks more closely matched what happened in the market. Like, take a look at the SP500 from that same time, i.e. from 2007 to 2009. What we see is that it fell 56%, much like buybacks that fell 55%. So dividends aren't infallible, as nothing is, but they usually have much less volatility than what is happening in the market, which is what us conservative dividend investors want to see. Anyways, all of that data should help you see that the biggest risk to dividends seems to come from the government materially changing taxation in a negative way. Though the biggest boon to dividends can also come from the government, but changing dividend taxation in a positive way. See, it ain't all bad. It could just be what you need. Now, before we move on, riddle me this. Why do you think the buybacks have gradually started happening more than dividends? Pause the video and leave me a comment telling me your thoughts before I answer. Okay, so it seems to be a variety of reasons. One reason is that executive compensation is often tied to achieving and maintaining certain stock prices, and buybacks often seem to help act as tailwinds for stock prices, which ultimately follow earnings, and so it helps when EPS gets pressed up from less shares existing due to buybacks. 
Another reason buybacks are probably favored over dividends are because they allow management to be more flexible with the capital they return to shareholders. Like management can authorize a $100 billion share buyback and then they can decide when and how much they actually do, unlike dividends where management feels like they're more locked into doing them. I heard an interesting analogy from Oswap Damodaran, a professor of finance at the Stern School of Business. He said that dividends are like getting married, whereas buybacks are like dating. So the decision to start paying a dividend is a big one for a company, because it starts influencing the type of investors you'll have and it sets an expectation in the market. And once you start paying a dividend, it's kind of like you're locked into that marriage of having to pay dividends, or the yes can hit the fan if you stop paying, aka get divorced. Buybacks, on the other hand, are like dating because there isn't an expectation of permanency with it. So what happens if a management team starts or stops paying dividends? I mean, does it really impact stock prices? Well, take a look at this study that Aswath shared in his finance class. The first column shows how stock prices were impacted, up or down, from 1962 to 1974 when dividend changes happened. What we see is that in those years, a dividend increase from a company was seen as good news and so stock prices would get about a 1% bump up in price, on average, across a broad section of stocks. However, when dividend cuts happened back then, the market was quite irked, aka lots of selling pressure happened and stocks would fall about 6% on average, which makes sense to me. But then what's interesting is that as time went on, less market price volatility happened due to dividend hikes or cuts. Like from 1988 to 2000, a dividend hike announcement barely acted as upward pressure for a stock, and a dividend decrease just meant about a 1.5% downward pressure on price. My guess is that as more information was available to people, the more they could estimate what companies would do ahead of time, meaning hikes or cuts would get priced into stocks, so when a hike or cut was announced it was expected enough that prices didn't materially move. And hopefully it's pretty intuitive to you that when a company cuts their dividend, it's usually not a good thing for the stock. In fact, here's Warren Buffett saying so this week at the annual Berkshire Hathaway conference. But I will say this, it's not good news when any company passes a dividend or cuts a dividend dramatically. Side note, you can find recent dividend changes listed in many places, like here's the Wall Street Journal site that lists hikes and cuts that recently happened. You can see that a company called Great Ajax, whatever they are, recently decreased their dividend from 25 cents down to 20 cents. Let's take a look at Seeking Alpha's article section to see if they confirm that. So here we see that Great Ajax has lost a huge 40% stock price in the last 12 months, which is harsh. Scrolling down, I see an article from a few days ago that says that Great Ajax cut its dividend by 20%, confirming what the Wall Street Journal had. And if we scroll further down, we see a summary that says, Great Ajax Corporation operates as a mortgage real estate investment trust. It acquires re-performing and non-performing loans, acquires or originates small balance commercial mortgage loans, blah blah blah. So it's an MREIT, which I tend not to invest in, as it seems like MREIT dividends go down and sideways too much for my blood. And if we click on Dividends and Dividends History and select the max time frame, we see that sure enough, Ajax's dividends have decreased multiple times in its short history. Anyways, even though some dividend stocks sometimes do cuts, the reality is that dividend stocks on average have outperformed non-dividend stocks over long periods of time all around the world. And that is true when taxes are high on dividend stocks or when they're low. For example, from 1979 to 2002, right before the Bush dividend and capital gain tax rates took effect, dividend stocks outperformed non-dividend paying stocks, gaining 14.4% annually compared to 11.3%. Or to say that differently, even when dividends are taxed poorly, dividend companies still tended to outperform non-dividend stocks. 
Thus, that probably means that even if the government effectively neuters your dividends with taxes, your total returns from stock appreciation of your quality dividend stocks should still outperform non-dividend stocks i.e. your dividend strategy might be impacted, but at least you should be able to fall back to the 3% or 4% rule of selling stocks, if you had to, at least until taxation was again lowered. I hope that doesn't happen, but it's still good to know you have options. And remember, there are some folks in Congress who want to stop taxing dividends at all, even in taxable accounts, because they say that companies already got taxed on their earnings, so don't tax them again when they're paid out. So think of that. Imagine finding out that Congress removed all dividend taxation altogether. I bet dividend stocks would get a ton of upward pressure on prices from investors jumping in. And taxation changes happen all the time. Like we recently saw how a net new buybacks tax was introduced at 1%, and now there are talks of increasing that tax up to 4%, so you never know what's going to happen. I also read that the more they increase buyback taxes, the more dividends will get love from both investors and companies, which makes sense. And speaking of taxes and stock prices and dividends, here is some more interesting data from Oswath Damodaran. He found that the higher the tax rate, the less a company's stock price dropped on the X date, versus the lower the taxes, the more the stock price falls on the X date. And remember, the commonly accepted statement is that the stock price falls by the dividend amount on the X date, but the professor found that things were a bit more nuanced than that. And why would that be? Well, the reason he said was due to the difference between the tax rate on dividends and the tax rate on capital gains. If dividends and capital gains were taxed equally, then the price change the stock price ends up having, on average, on the X date, is about by the amount of the dividend. If dividends are taxed at a higher rate than capital gains, then the price drop tends to be less than the dividend, i.e. the dividend gets paid out, and the drop in the price of the stock is less than what was paid out. If dividends are taxed at a lower rate than capital gains, then the price drop tends to be greater than the amount of the dividend. And all those changes can give you insights into the type of investors that own the stock and their tax brackets. Another finding that the professor had was that dividend increases are often good for stock prices, as we already knew, but interestingly are bad for bonds, which actually makes intuitive sense, because as dividend yields go up, they often seem more attractive to more investors. Another interesting insight that Oswap put together was what company management believes about dividends. Like he found that dividend payments provide a signaling device of future prospects, and the majority of managers, i.e. 52%, agreed with that statement. Signaling is when a company does something that helps the market understand where it's going. Like if they hike their dividend, then that's probably a signal that the firm's cash flows are remaining robust, and that the managers believe in their ongoing growth potential. He found that 51% of managers agreed that the market uses dividend announcements as information for assessing firm value. He also found that 64% disagreed with the statement that investors are basically indifferent with regard to returns from dividends and capital gains, i.e. most managers feel that investors care about whether they get dividends or stock appreciation, much to the angst of the authors I talked about in my previous video, which say that's a mistake. Aswath found that 41% voted that management should be responsive to shareholders' preferences regarding dividends, whereas 10% said they shouldn't. I wish it was higher than 41%. That reminds me of this article I read about a longtime investor that was annoyed that these days shareholders don't seem to realize that they hold a lot of power to push management in the directions they want, but many people don't even vote or work to influence corporate change. And then here's some more fascinating data that Aswath found. Like that higher beta stocks pay lower dividends, which makes sense to me. I mean utilities are low beta and tend to have higher dividends. Higher beta stocks like Apple and Microsoft have lower dividends on average. He then found that firms with old investors pay higher dividends, which also makes sense to me. 
Like as you get older, you tend to be closer to or in retirement. So you're probably investing in companies with more of a dividend than those young bucks are. Ellsworth also found that firms with wealthier investors often pay lower dividends, thus are probably more focused on capital appreciation. So now hopefully you can better understand the relationships between taxes and dividends and stock prices and capital gains, and why I feel that the biggest risks to dividends are from lawmakers. And before I end this video, I want to show you a CNBC video from May of 2017, where they were interviewing Aswath as they showed him what Dr. Robert Schiller, aka of the Schiller P.E. Ratio fame, aka a prestigious finance professor at Yale, was saying about the markets at that time. Now, last week overall, uh, Rob, Professor Robert Schiller of Yale, I'm sure you know who he is, if I know him personally, told us that valuations are so high the market has become a little bit dangerous. Here's what he said, listen. Uh, it hasn't been this overvalued uh, except a couple times in history, 19, around 1929, around 2000. We're above uh, the 2007 valuation. Right now is a good time to look at one's portfolio and ask if it's diversified enough. You know, there's Europe over there, there's Asia over there, and I think most Americans are not uh, well diversified globally. Okay, what are your thoughts, Oswald? Well, the part of it that I agree with is we should all be more diversified. But the part that I don't get is, how is diversification going to protect you if there's a market crash? If the market crashes in the U.S., it's going to crash in the U.S. We're all, we're all linked up at the hip. It's not the 1980s where the U.S. market can be down 40%. The European market is going to be up 10%. If we're going to crash, we're all going to crash. Being diversified is not going to bail you out. That said, I think I heard... Well, could it minimize it, though, Oswald? I mean, I, think, I don't think he's saying it's going to bail you out necessarily, but, but mitigate some of your losses if, if we get that. Not really. Not if you're in equities. The only way you can mitigate your losses is by getting almost entirely out of financial assets. And I think that's the reality we face since 2008, is unlike the old days where you had geographic correlations that could help you or maybe one class of equities did well when, when another did not, I think we're all correlated to the point that if you had a major crash, it doesn't matter what your portfolio is going to lo looks like. If it is 100% equity, you're going to feel it. So the only way out of this is to take your money out of stocks and put it into cash. And the problem with that is if you're wrong, I mean, there are people who have been in cash since 2013 telling us exactly the thing that Robert, Professor Schiller said last week. And the cost of staying out of the market often is greater than whatever you might benefit by staying out of the next crash. Yeah, and do, do you see a crash coming, by the way? We're just talking like, hey, if there's a crash, I mean, is there a possibility of that? There's always a correction coming. It's, I mean, it's, it's only a matter of time. When you've been doing well for a decade, there's always going to be a correction coming. The real question you have to ask yourself, is it worth it to actually reallocate your portfolio to try to avoid that correction when you don't know when it will come and how it will come and what form it will take? I have never been able to make that prediction solidly enough to start to, reallocating, to, to reallocate my portfolio. Maybe there are others who are better at timing the market than I am, so I'm not going to stop other people from making their own judgments. But for me, market timing has never worked. Now, the reason I wanted to show you that was to highlight what the SP 500 looked like in May of 2017 when they did a video and Schiller was worried about things were too expensive. But what we see is that markets continue to rally for another 73% until today. And the only main downside came from the pandemic, which we quickly recovered from. Are we still overpriced? I think so, but no one, not even famous people who have financial formulas named after them, know what the future holds. The markets may be expensive right now, but they can keep running for decades. Or they could crash. 
It's really, really hard to time the markets, and no one can consistently do it. Sitting on hordes of cash sometimes works, but sometimes not. And with that, I'd like to close things out with a shout out to Or Regev, who just snagged a Patreon King slot. Though now I'm all sold out again on both Aristocrat and King seats. Kings get access to my dividend spreadsheet product that I use in my videos, and they get to be in multiple private channels on my dividend Discord chat server, where I let my upper tier Patreons watch my videos before I release them publicly on YouTube, as well as will let them vote on which thumbnails I use for my videos, and of course they get more direct access to me. I also do a shout out as you just heard, and I add them to my scrolling news ticker if I still have space on it. Kings also get a private 30 minute monthly voice chat on my Discord to talk about whatever they want. And as I stated in the beginning of this video, don't forget to check out my Seeking Alpha affiliate link in the description of this video before they raise prices. Finally, if you made it this far in the video, then please hit the thumbs up button, subscribe if you haven't yet, and click the bell notification. Plus, I urge everyone to join my free Dividend Discord chat server, which has over 10,000 dividend investors on it from over 72 countries around the world. Thanks for watching, stay positive, and I'll talk to you again real soon. I am not a financial advisor, and these videos are for entertainment, inspiration, and educational purposes only. Investing of any kind involves risk. I am only sharing my opinion with no guarantee of gains or losses on investments.